Great to see you all here this morning. I've been uh, a little absent over the past couple, the last two Sundays, um, dealing with, with COVID and different things, and so I'm glad to be able to be back here with you guys this morning. I hope that you were all able to have a great time in my absence, hopefully not too much fun in my absence, but um, hope that you all were even able to have a, uh, have a good week and um, were able to have a good couple of weeks there. But what if you weren't able to have a good week? What if, in fact, you actually didn't have a good week? What if you actually have been struggling over these past few weeks? Maybe last week, maybe the past few weeks, maybe the last season, as you might be able to call it. What if you woke up this morning exhausted, troubled, in distress, and you put yourself together, you got yourself ready, you got the kids together or the different necessary things to be able to come into church and you drove here but you barely made it through the front door. What if you came in, you sat down in the pew that you're currently sitting in and you, um, you uh, hear the worship, you hear the announcements, you hear all the, thank you so much, I appreciate that. You come in, you hear all the announcements, you hear the worship songs communicating the truths and beauties of God, good truth and good beauty, but it may feel a little hollow. What if there's wrestling that you feel as you're, forgive me, I had coffee, I didn't have water this morning. If there's wrestling you feel in the midst of people around you being able to say amen, people around you being able to have joy in God, and you may not feel that. In fact, you may even be angry with God. That's what I want to talk about this morning. Pastor John mentioned last week that we are going through a series over the next couple of months through the book of the Psalms. And I'm very excited for that. I love the book of the Psalms. It's this beautiful illustration of how God's people worshipped and prayed. You know, we have our own worship songs. We have our own prayers. We have our own different things that we say. People might, songs may say the same things. Prayers may have similar tunes. You know, we, we have our our things that we say and do and we're comfortable with them and we understand them. And there's insight we can get into how we sing about God and how we pray to God. And I think the same is true with the Psalms for God's people, the Israelites, is that there's repeated phrasing, there's certain prayers, there's certain genres, there's certain themes, there's certain mountain peak moments, and there's certain dark valley moments. And I think that that can give us a beautiful insight into how God wishes us to worship both in a Sunday morning service and also in the rest of our lives. Last week, Pastor John preached on Psalm chapter 1, talking about the beauty of God's word, being able to help direct our lives, being able to be a life source for us as a tree that is planted by a stream of water. And that was one that, that was filled with warning, and, but with wisdom and with praise. 
But this morning, we're going to talk about a different form of worship. If Psalm chapter 1 had this, this, this aura of sort of strength and wisdom and beauty, the psalm that I'm going to be talking about today might have more of this leaning of struggle, of confusion, of wrestling, of hurt. We're going to talk about this morning a psalm that many have called a psalm of lament. Lament is going to be our topic for this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, please open them to to the book of Psalms. We're going to be, for those of you who are maybe systematic people, go from point A to point B to point C, might think we'll go to Psalm 2. Well, we're not. Please uh, forgive me. But instead, we're actually going to go to the second half of the Psalms. We're going to go to Psalm 90. We're going to go to Psalm 90. So please open up your Bibles, whether you have a physical copy or you have one on your phone. Please open your Bibles to Psalm 90. And as you're turning there, allow me to provide a little bit of insight into this psalm. This one's a very unique psalm because it is very possible that this psalm might be the oldest psalm in the entirety of the book of Psalms. I may say psalm a lot this morning, just preparing you for that. But this may be the oldest of the book of Psalms because it was written, or there's a a good chance it was written by Moses. Moses. The Psalms more than likely were compiled by a specific editor somewhere around the time of the post-exile period. These these Psalms could have been worshipped in several different areas all throughout the history of Israel, but this more than likely would have been taken and compiled together around the exile, post-exile period of Israel's history. Moses is way, way back past that. He is way back, hundreds, if not maybe even thousands, a thousand years. And so the second thing, and so that's one thing we need to realize when we're looking at this psalm. The second thing we need to realize is the context by which this psalm was written. Now, some psalms are generous to the reader, and they'll tell you this psalm was written by this person in this time of their life. They'll say, you know, this was done in this specific place. Here, we don't get that. We simply get a prayer of Moses, the man of God. That's our context. That's what we have to deal with. And so so many people all throughout the history of, or as long as this has been written, have questioned and debated as to when exactly it was written. And though many people have argued about it, I don't really like arguing, so I'll just say what I, what I have been able to think might be the best place to be based on the context of the psalm, based on what it's talking about, based on what its message is. And a majority of scholars would suggest that this psalm was written somewhere in what has been called the wilderness period of Moses' life. If you're unfamiliar with what that means, allow me to fill in the picture. Moses, as many know, is... Um, is God, was God's chosen individual to go into the land of Egypt and rescue God's people from slavery. Some of you might remember Sunday schools or, or church plays or whatever else. 
and might be able to remember some of the stuff coming back. But Moses went back to Egypt. He rescued God's people from slavery. He went through the whole the Red Sea fiasco. He t- took a pit stop at Mount Sinai for a moment, got the Ten Commandments, broke the Ten Commandments, and then went to the borders of the promised land, the land that God had chosen and set apart for his people, the Israelites. And there must have been great excitement that they had as they journeyed, albeit struggle at the same time. And then they finally make it to the borders of the promised land, and they send in a number of spies to see what is going on in this land, and these spies report back that there are a peoples inhabiting this land, and they are very powerful. They're very scary. There's a lot of them. They have incredible amounts of weaponry. We don't stand a chance. If we go in, they're going to destroy us. This caused a great amount of fear among God's people, which ultimately led in them deciding to not enter the promised land and instead rebel against God's command. God was very angry with this decision. And so God cursed his people telling them, because you were disobedient for me, with, with me, you will pay a punishment for this. Your punishment is to spend 40 years walking in the wilderness, out in the arid, dry, desolate desert. You're going to walk around for 40 years. And before you think it's just a time out just for, for them to sit in and think about what they've done, it's something more than that. Because God also adds this other curse. He says, oh, and the generation that rebelled against me, that said I'm not going to go into the promised land, you're going to go out into the desert and you're going to die. You are going to go out into the desert and that entire generation is going to die in those 40 years. And your next generation, your children, are going to raise up and eventually take the promised land, go into the land that God promised to you, But you yourself, because of your disobedience, are not going to inherit this promise from God. Wow. What a horrible thing to hear. It seems fair. There's a part of it in us that goes, well, it seems fair. In some ways, you you reap what you sow, right? But at the other hand, there's, imagine that curse being put on you. Imagine you being told that. This hope that you've had, gone. This promise that you've been given, gone. And so thus starts the 40 years in exile in the wilderness for God's people. And in this point, a place that is surrounded by by a very extreme lack of life, both in the natural world around them and in the individuals that are dying in these people's Many scholars believe that Moses was brought to a point of writing this psalm. So we know the author, we know the context. Both of these are very important, and I'll recall them multiple times as we go through this psalm. But please, without further ado, join me in reading. We're going to read the first two verses first. Starting in verse 1. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. 
We're going to pause there for a moment. What a very beautiful proclamation of who God is. Moses specifically targets two specific characteristics of God. The first one is that God has been our dwelling place in all generations. When Moses would have thought of this, he more than likely would have thought of something called the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a building that God had told his people to build so that God would be able to have what is called a dwelling place with his peoples, where God's presence could be on earth in a visible physical place so that when God's people went to the tabernacle, they would be able to know that they are in the dwelling place of God. They could pray to God. They could talk with God. They could worship God. And they knew that he was there. It was a place of of comfort. It was a place of challenge. It was a place of instruction where these people would be able to learn about God and grow closer to God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. The second thing he says, before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Moses refers back to the creation account and refers and, and, and proclaims God as creator God, this supreme being that is able to create the world that we know of today. As Moses and his people would have wandered through the wilderness, they would have seen the many mountain ranges that would have been outcropping out of the desert. And he would have seen these powerful natural structures. And he would have known that these are so small compared to the infinite power of God as creator. Even these powerful natural forces are nothing compared to who God is. Not just in his power, but also in his infiniteness. Where it says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From before time itself was created, to time and eternity when we can't even count, you are creator, you are powerful, you are God. What a beautiful proclamation of these truths of God. We're starting out pretty good here, right? Then we turn to verse 3. You return man to dust. And say, return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it passed, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening, it fades and it withers. Something that is very, that is a a characteristic of a psalm of lament is many times they'll begin with a time of proclamation, a time of, 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 of showing the beauty and power of God. And then before long, they quickly turn to the problem. The problem. There's a problem there, right? And this problem picks up in verse three, where it says, You return man to dust, and you say, Return, O children. Of man. Now, if we remember what just happened in verse 2, where we affirmed the everlasting, infinite nature of God, we then are hit in the face with the finite and small and weak nature of humanity. You return them to dust. The Bible says, From dust you came, and to dust you shall return. 
And then he gives us this really interesting illustration. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday, or even as a watch in the night. A watch in the night would have been a military term that Moses and his people would have understood of, of consisting about a time, a time and place when guards would have stood on the wall of a, of a fortified city and had a night watch. They would have been on night patrol. And it would have consisted of roughly about four hours. And so Moses is, is, is comparing a thousand years in, in our sight, is, in God's sight, but as yesterday or as even as four hours. A thousand years is compared to four hours in the infinite nature of God. I mean, think back to a thousand years ago. Does any of us even know what happened a thousand years ago? Obviously, none of us were there. I mean, a thousand years ago, we had castles and lords, and we were getting jazzed about catapults and stuff. But a thousand years ago is compared to four hours in the sight of God. Then we continue in this problem portion of the passage. You, you sweep them away as with a flood. Verse 5. They are like a dream. You sweep them away. Notice the you language. The, the, the responsibility is falling on God. God returns man to dust. God sweeps them away as with a flood. Moses is putting this blame on God. He's saying, you're responsible for this. They are like a dream. Anybody have a dream last night that you don't remember this morning? Did anybody have one of those? I think I did. I don't, I don't fully remember, but I think I did. Where You know those dreams where you're in the midst of the dream, and you feel it in your, your, your brain, and you're kind of going along with it. You're like, yeah, this is a good dream. This is kind of cool. And you wake up, and five minutes later, you have no idea what you just dreamed about. That is how small we are compared to the infinite nature of God. You are like a dream. He gives us another illustration as if we didn't have enough of this truth pounded into our heads. He gives us another illustration like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. That's us. And I think that this illustration, we're a little bit at a, at a disadvantage of fully understanding. Right now, our grass is a little, is, is dead, but it's dead for a bit of a different reason than it would have been dead with where Moses was at. Here it's dead because it's cold and you can't even see it. Well, and if you can't see it, I don't know if it's melting right now. But for Moses, it would have been as they're, as they're walking through the desert, it, the deserts get cold at night. I don't know if you knew that. Deserts get very cold at night and dew can form on the ground just as dew can form on the ground here in the summertime, obviously, in the summertime. And it, it can go into the sand and provide nourishment to this grass seeds and they can, they can spring up through the sand and it can almost look like there's some grass there in the desert. And you might wake up in the morning and see the dew on the grass as, as it's green, it's strong, it's alive, it's healthy. And then the sun continues to rise. And the heat continues to grow. 
And the dew is very quickly evaporated. And and this life source that sustained this grass is very quickly gone. And because of the sun's scorching heat onto the grass by nightfall, the grass is a very different color. It isn't green, lifelike, alive. It's brown, wilted, and dead. That is the state of humanity. Forgive me, this is not a very optimistic-sounding message. We continue on, verses 7 through 11. Here is where we had this problem of the finite nature of man, and now we interact with a difficult truth. Verse 7. For we are brought to an end by your anger and your wrath, We are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you. There is so much to unpack in this section. First, we we encountered the problem in verse 3, the finite nature of humans, how we die oh so quickly. And then here, the, the problem switches, and, and we, get a, we almost get an answer to the problem. For we are brought to an end By God's anger, by God's wrath, we are dismayed. God has set our iniquities before himself, our secret sins in light of his presence. For all of our days pass away under God's wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. When you put God in there, it's a little bit more forceful. And I think at this point, it's, it, it's, it's an important point to stop and to remember the context by which the psalm was written. Moses is in the wilderness. Moses is in the desert. There's no life there. There's no animals there. There's no vegetation there. The little vegetation that's there is gone by the afternoon. Moses is surrounded by death in his natural world, in his environment, in this ecosystem or the lack thereof. And not just that, but he's surrounded by death with his people. Walking with a group of people out in the wilderness waiting to die. Think of all the funerals that he must have gone through. Think of all the trouble that his people had, all the suffering that his people encountered as they wrestled with this problem. Many of us have been to a funeral. Many of us know the grief of a funeral. Many of us know the heartache of the family who lost the loved one. Maybe not in the funeral, but at times before or after, there's, there's tears, there's frustration, there's questions, there's a search for an explanation that we can't find. Why did that person have to die? Where are they now? What's life going to look like now that they're gone? 
All of these are very common questions in the funeral. And perhaps even many of you have asked these same questions. This is where Moses' heart is at. But then there's another added layer in the sense that he, he's asking these questions, but he knows the answer. The answer is, you're the one that messed up. We are responsible, for we were the ones that rebelled with, from God at the promised land. And we are the ones who are cursed because of our disobedience, and we are the ones that will pay for that sin. There's this, it's, 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 it's this time where if he were given, if you were to give Moses or the people in this situation a test and say, why are you going through this difficulty? They'd be able to get the answer right. They could get, they could get an A on the test. The problem isn't that they know the answer. The problem for them is the answer provides no comfort. And the problem for them is that they still know the God of verses 1 and 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Lord, you are everlasting. You are God. They know that to be true. There is a great distance between their head knowledge and their heart knowledge. As their head knows the answer, but their heart still grieves. As they still hurt. And they still look for hope even after they know the answer. And so, what does Moses do in this place of wrestling with his own mind and his own thoughts as he's, as he's, as he's wrestling as these people struggle with knowing the right answer? It's a weird way to say that. Well, let's finish the psalm, psalm starting at verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Moses is in this place where all he can do is ask. He knows the God of verses 1 and 2. And he knows the circumstances of verses 3 through 11. And he is in tension as he wrestles with both of those things being true. And so all he can do is make requests. God, give us a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. Help us to know how to live in this horrible, sin-filled, death-filled world. Return, God. Return, deliver us from this evil. Satisfy us in the morning. Show us your love. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. We have been through suffering. We want gladness, God. Give it to us, please. 
Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. God, we know you've worked. We saw the Red Sea split in two. We saw the ten plagues disrupt Egypt. We saw the manna and the water fall from heaven to give us just the amount that we need. Reveal to us your works. Give us your favor. Establish the works of our hands. Give us worth in this world full of toil and trouble. All of these are, are, are such earnest and real prayer requests. They're real. Many of us have prayed these prayer requests before. Many of us have asked God to return, to deliver us from evil. Many of us have asked for God to show his power in our lives so that we don't deal with the evil that is currently in front of us. Many of us have asked God to give us purpose in the work that we do so that it isn't pointless. But notice how the psalm ends. It ends on verse 17. It ends with a request. It doesn't end with a verse 18 that says, and then God delivered me, and now everything is good, and I can praise him forevermore. It doesn't end with a resolution. It leaves us, it leaves the reader, it leaves the worshiper, it leaves the individual praying intention. It leaves us with prayer requests made, but at this point, we don't see the answers. How many of us have been in that place where we've made that prayer request? We're in pain. We're in grieving. We've prayed to God, and we're waiting for his answer. How many of us have been in that situation? I feel like in many ways, our world is in that place now. Two years into a pandemic, people dying, people dealing with health concerns that will affect them the rest of their lives. On a greater level, this pandemic has brought division amongst people all over the world and in God's church. Brothers turning against brothers, family members arguing at Thanksgiving dinner. And with that comes the, the mental health battle, which leads to family issues, which leads to marital issues, which leads to parenting issues. It all is connected, and we've all prayed for, for two years, God, end this. Deliver us. And we don't have the resolution. There is a pain there. There is hurt there. And that is our time for lament. I feel like lament is a word that is said in church, but it's a word that I think lacks understanding. It's one of those Christian words that we say, but we don't fully understand what it means. We don't understand what good lament is from bad lament. We don't even understand if at some moment we're lamenting or even if we're just complaining. And so this is, for, for, for one reason, I think this is one of the reasons why we should, we should be going through the book of the Psalms so we know what Scripture shows us lament looks like. So Scripture can guide us in our struggles as we doubt and we wrestle and we fight in this imperfect world. 
compared to an infinite and perfect God. And I feel like when we approach the topic of lament, there's a number of ways, there are, there are extremes kind of on this spectrum that I think both of these two extremes can face many of us today, where we feel like we may be lamenting, but in reality we're not. We're, we're, we're messing up the idea of what God has for us struggling. On the one hand, one of the first temptations is thinking we're lamenting, but we're really not. You know, the, I, I'm calling it, this is not a copyrighted term, but I'm calling it the Sunday morning face. You may know what that's like, what I may have, what I illustrated in the intro of, 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 my, of my sermon here, where an individual is hurting in life. Monday through Saturday is full of pain, is full of difficulty, is full of hurt, is full of family issues. And then you wake up on Sunday morning, you take a shower, clean yourself up, put on your best, your Sunday best, wrangle the kids together, make it to church just on time. And people come up to you and they say, how are you doing? And you say, oh, I'm good. Things are good. You put on this face. We put on this face that says, oh, I'm doing okay, when in reality we're not, when in reality we're hurting. But we've put on our Sunday morning face. And if you are in that place where you're putting on the Sunday morning face, forgive me for rhyming, my application for you in that, in that place is that it's okay to not be okay sometimes. It's okay to know that life hurts. It's okay to know that we are dissatisfied with the evil in this world. And quite frankly, when we pretend that everything's okay, it's actually even more not okay. Because if we are to believe in the God of verses 1 and 2, then we are to believe that God is everlasting, he is infinite, he is powerful, he is our creator. And if he's our creator, then he knows us better than we know ourselves. And when we put that Sunday morning face on and say that everything's okay, we're lying to God. We are lying to God. That is sin. It's okay to not be okay. If that is your place that you're in, be honest with God. Be honest and even if you don't have words, repeat perhaps the words of Psalm 90. Be honest with people around you. I, I fall into this temptation greatly where on a Sunday morning I come in and I even did this this morning with some people I talked to, and I apologize to some of you that I talked to before the service, and people say, how are you doing? I'm going, oh, I'm good. When in reality, life hurts. When in reality, there's struggle there. And so for that, I'm sorry to those of you that I said that to this morning. That's one side of this extreme of lament. And I think the other side is instead of forgetting about lament, we, we allow difficulties and struggles to be our identity. We allow our difficulties to define us. 
We're known as that person who's been hurting. And there's a place for that. There's a position that perhaps, like Moses here, I don't think this is a, I write the psalm, then I feel better. I think this is a journey. And if you know anything about the story of Moses, he was a man that doubted God constantly. He had a journey in that. And we have a journey in that. But we can all get to a point where our difficulties define us and we enter a place of hopelessness. Perhaps life has hurt a little too long. And we have just allowed it to be a reality and we've allowed it to define us. Both of these places I think God doesn't want us to be. And so if you feel this morning, and the, the hardest, also the hardest part about this, the hardest part of lament, the hardest part of grief, the hardest part of difficulty, is it's a subjective thing. It's different for each individual. We all traverse the stages of grief differently. And there's some of us that are lucky that can get through it very quickly. But there's some of us that sit and struggle for years. And so I'm in no way claiming one person is on one spectrum side of the spectrum or the other. That is for the individual to decide. That is for the family to figure out, for the spouse or the close friend to correct when needed. But if you are in that place of hopelessness, I encourage you to do two things. First thing I encourage you to do is be with people. For both of these extremes, be in community. Be with people. Don't lament alone. Do not ever lament alone. When those people come up to you on a Sunday morning and say, how are you doing? Yes, there's wisdom of knowing how and what information to disclose about certain difficulties, but at the same time, God has put these people here around you to be able to encourage you to show God's love to you. And by either falling into hopelessness or falling into the Sunday morning faith, face, both of those are boundaries and, and distances that you put in between yourself and others. And little do you know that quite possibly God is sending that person to talk to you, to help you, to encourage you, to reveal to you the love of Christ. So both applications here end in community, but from different places. And even for folks that are in hopelessness, perhaps there's even greater issues there, perhaps even psychological issues, biological issues, issues of mental health. And if, if that is a case, then perhaps even therapy might be recommended. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. And it's a way, it's a tool that God has given us to help overcome these issues in our lives. And so if you are in this place of hopelessness, I encourage you, be with people and get help. Please. And the difficult thing, as I can begin to close up here, is that Moses, 
once again, didn't get the resolution, but he rested in these truths and these prayer requests he made to God. And, and, and he didn't know the end of the story here, but we do know the end of the story. We know the resolution for Moses and God's people, and they eventually did get through the 40 years of exile, the thousands of, of deaths and funerals, eventually turned into God's people entering the promised land and receiving the blessing that God had given to them. And then through that eventually came the development of the kingdom of Israel with David as king. And then God was able to speak to David and promise to him a future king would come one day to, to, be, to sit on the, king, on the throne of God for eternity and to guide his people. And if we read further in the Bible, we get to the truth of the birth of Jesus, where Jesus did come, where Jesus did live. He did die on the cross. He did pay for your sins and for mine. He did offer you, and he still does offer you, the free gift of salvation in God. And with that promise now comes the future promise that sin will one day be destroyed. But until that happens, we will be unsatisfied with this world. We will wrestle with death. We will wrestle with life struggles. We will wrestle with pain, grief, and sorrow. And so we know the future hope before us, but much like Moses, perhaps that future head knowledge does not give us the hope now. If we are in that place, my encouragement to you is to lament. To address your problem before God to know and recognize and worship him for the truths that we know from Scripture, but also allow the difficulties of our life to stand in tension and make requests to God and trust that he will be faithful to his promises. Even when and especially if it hurts right now. We are all called to lament. We are all called to be honest with God and honest with each other.